Hi, it's Finn Dwyer from the Irish History Podcast, and this is a Staycast from Acast. Please, please, please follow the government's advice right now, which is currently to stay at home where possible. While you're staying at home, I would recommend another great show that's worth checking out. It's Unexplained by Richard McLean Smith. It's a beautifully produced and gripping show that looks at unusual and sometimes unnerving occurrences from the past and present. It's perfect escapism. Check out Unexplained on the Acast app or wherever you get podcasts. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Everything is Black and White podcast. I'm Andrew Musgrove and today myself and Chris Woff are going to look at Newcastle United's most underrated players. We picked our first 11 and we'd love you guys to also get involved through our social media channels. But for now, sit back and enjoy the Everything is Black and White podcast in association with Etoro. Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Everything is Black and White podcast. It is, of course, Christmas and myself and Chris Woff have decided to bring you a Christmas present in the form of a very special episode, let's say, of the podcast looking at the most underrated players of Newcastle United from roughly the last kind of 30 years. Uh, Chris and myself have been going through some names and we've picked a start in 11 in the 4-4-2 formation. We've each been given uh, five or six positions to uh, pick the players from. And Chris, we will start with you. Obviously, the first name on the list is going to be a goalkeeper. Um, who have you chosen and why? So goalkeeper, I have gone for uh, a current member of the Newcastle United squad, although you've probably forgotten that he is here, hasn't made an appearance in it's almost a year. It's coming up to a year. I think it's maybe next week, be 12 months. And that is Rob Elliott. Fourth choice at Newcastle at the moment, slipped behind Dubravka, Darlow and Woodman. But actually, I think someone who has served the club well. I think that it's very important that you have a goalkeeper who is second or third choice and someone who, who is, is almost like, it gives longevity to the club because he becomes like the glue which knits it together. He's been in the castle since 2011, only cost less than 2 million, only made 65 league appearances during that time, but very important servant to the club, was very important in the year Newcastle were relegated. He was either player of the year that season and, and really his injury late on affected them. Uh, he's dependable if unspectacular. He isn't great distribution-wise, but can make some very good saves. And he's just a really good character behind the scenes. He's a senior figure, someone who loves the area, loves the club, and has really bought into everything here. Definitely. you know, he, I think there was a game against Spurs and he was, he was very good. He, he does tend to pull off some unbelievable um, saves and given his size as well you would think he's maybe not the mobile of most mobile of goalkeepers but actually he's a very good reactionary shot stopper he is and the best game I've ever seen him play and possibly up there with the best goalkeeper performance I've seen was Newcastle away at Bournemouth where Newcastle won 1-0 under Steve McLaren but were absolutely hammered and he must have made no exaggeration seven or eight brilliant saves at least two or three which are absolutely world class and uh, he's been called upon in those times and he's someone who has sat behind Tim Krull and then Dubravka and others and, and he's sort of accepted that position and he's been willing to, to be uh, that goalkeeper who just stays for a long time obviously nowhere near as long as Steve Harbour but that same sort of position as someone who understands the club uh, is trying to continue the ethos and someone who's really important in changing everything in 2016 he was one of the people who came out and he spoke vocally about the, the issues that Newcastle had the issues in the dressing room and he helped reform it along with Jamal Lascelles and others and I think that his, his role can't be understated in that 
And great to see he's also putting back into the community with his uh, with his foundation academy. Um, great to give some local youngsters a chance to make it in the game. Um, on to right back, I've gone with Habi Bay. Um, arrived from Marseille 2007 in the closing minutes of the transfer window to cost two million. Now he was voted Player of the Season both here um, at the Cron by our readers and then by I think the club itself in uh, May 2008. He had a storming season, um, but where it all ended, obviously Newcastle were relegated um, the season after. It, absolute mayhem, wasn't it? Um, and then he came out and said he wanted to stay. And then I think it was a few weeks, maybe a month later, he came out and said, actually, I'm going to have to leave because, you know, for the sake of my career. Um, and it all ended and, and fans reacted quite badly to that. They thought, you know, he'd kind of, I don't know if stabbed him in the back is the right term of phrase, but they weren't happy that he jumped ship maybe when Newcastle needed, you know, these quality senior players the most. Um, but I mean, that season that he did perform when things went all right in the 2007-08 season, you know, he was he was he was brilliant. I mean, not just going forward. I mean, that's what we've got at the moment. We've got DeAndre Yedlin, who is an absolute fantastic kind of wing back, if you will. He can go forward at length, speed. Crossing probably needs a bit of improvement, but in general, going tacking is he's a better better attacker than he is a defender. Whereas Habi Bay was quite balanced in that. He was brilliant going forward, but equally a very very good defender. Um, if he went in for a slide challenge, you weren't worried he was going to bring someone down. He could keep up with it, the most speedy of players. Um, I remember he got sent off against Manchester City for a title on Rubinho. Um, it was a superb challenge. Wins the ball, sent off. The card gets rescinded. Um, but, you know, them kind of challenges, he went in and, and if he went, went in for it, he was always going to win it. Yeah, I think when Habib Bey had that season, he, he was excellent and was one of the most consistent performers at fullback in the entire Premier League. The issue was, it became when he decided he wanted to go for whatever reason that was, whether it was monetary purposes, I'm not really sure. But then I think his focus just completely shifted and the last few performances really did sour the time from before and obviously the relationship with fans deteriorated and, and that has, I think, masked uh, what we first saw from B. I think a few of the players that we discussed we'll discuss later on, it's a similar sort of scenario whereby they've left the club under a cloud and almost the legacy they had before has been tarnished because of that. And, and B, I would certainly say, uh, was was a very, very consistent performer. Most certainly. I mean, other names that could also fit it right back. I mean, Warren Barton, you know, for some, wasn't a, maybe a well-liked player in terms of, you know, he wasn't exactly rated the highest by some others, absolutely loved him. Um, but again, he was, you know, key to, to Keegan's entertainers era. Um, I suppose you could mention Annie Griffin in the same kind of breath as well. Um, and even, I know you're going to mention someone, yeah, it's centre-back in a brief moment, but even, um, well, I'm not, I'll not name the player. You'll find out in 30 seconds when Chris mentions him, but the player Chris will mention again is another one who you could quite easily fit in at right-back as kind of the um, the unsung hero. Yeah, well, the centre-back I'm going for, I can hear a lot of fans will, will be reeling listening to this, saying that he, he was a full-back, but he could play a centre-back. Only played there a few times for Newcastle, but went on to make a career for himself there, a very successful career elsewhere, and that is Aaron Hughes, someone who at the time I thought it was ludicrous that Newcastle sold him, only got £1 million from someone who was so dependable, so reliable, 
wasn't flashy in any way, shape or form, but was uh, a far better defender than he often received credit for. Uh, played in the Champions League, played in some very, very big games in Newcastle United history, an important part of Sir Bobby Robson's team. Someone who would come through the system as well. He may have been from Northern Ireland, but he came through the system. And he made 278 appearances between 1997 and 2005. Then he was allowed to go to Aston Villa and eventually on to Fulham, where he played at centre-back, played at centre-back for Northern Ireland, got himself 112 caps, and just someone who I think was was such a steady professional. And, and the club, in my opinion, started to go on a bit of a downward spiral after that. And I'm not saying it was a direct result of, of Hughes going, but you lost a few of those characters, a few of the people who understood everything that Newcastle United was. And once he left, uh, then they really did struggle after that. And I just think that Newcastle should have had the foresight to realise that he, at full-back, he probably wasn't as quick as he once was, but shift him into centre-back, not the biggest, but someone alongside a physical centre-back who could play a little bit and was just so dependable. No, definitely. I agree with that. You know, growing up as a, a kid, you know, one of the, the kind of favorite players, really, because he was, like you say, Mister Dependable, Mister you know versatile as well, and um, kind of a in, a in a way a comparison to what Paul Dummett is today. You know, a man who understands what it means to be a Newcastle United player um, and puts his everything into it. You know, he might not be the best player in the world, but what he does, he does well, and. You always saw a gradual improvement under um, with with Hughes, and he, we've seen it with Dummett as well. And again, we'll get on to Dummett in a moment. Um, Sorry, seal your thunder, Chris. Um, but that, that's what we saw, and I think you know that's not really a bad comparison to make. You know, and I'm sure um, if Paul Dummett's listening, he'd probably very happily receive that kind of comparison. Um, on to my centre back, I've gone for another kind of. Uh, one season wonder, if you will, in, in Sebastian Bassong, a £500,000 signing from Met, one week trial he had at Newcastle, and he then signed as a, as a 22-year-old, if my maths is correct, that was July 2008. And again, you know, this was the season which really tore Newcastle apart, didn't it? Because it finished with Newcastle getting relegated to the championship, something we all thought was, you know, unthinkable really we 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 just been taken over by this billionaire you know we still had Michael Owen Damien Duff in the, in, in the team um obviously that time when Basong signed you know Keegan was, was 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 manager you know things were looking positive and then it all unravels and the shining light really was Sebastian Basong uh he was a brilliant defender and it's it's easy to forget just how good he was in that season because obviously that's like, Newcastle were relegated he then moves to Spurs. It didn't really happen for him at Spurs, and since then he's been a bit of a journeyman. But you know, you, you watched him, and he was he was brilliant for his age as well. Absolutely brilliant because he had the speed. He was good in the air. He could tackle. You know, not many you know players got by him. I I, I think he was also named I think Player of the Year as well for, for Newcastle before obviously he moved on. Like I said, down to the Spurs. Um, but yeah, I mean, a really good defender and it was such a shame that the season ended in the way it did because you know it would have been great to see him form a partnership with with um you know with with Colicini. yeah i think Basong, I'd, I'd compare him to steven taylor in the sense that i thought there was someone who at that stage of his career really needed an experienced centre-back alongside him who was going to help nurture him. He didn't really necessarily get that at, at Spurs. He did play with Ledley King, but Ledley King was injured a lot. And early in Stephen Taylor's Newcastle career, 
Jonathan Woodgate was injured a lot and he had to play with Titus Bramble and a few of them, let's say, less dependable centre-backs. And Basong, is, his career hasn't progressed as we all thought it would. He looked so brilliant at that stage. And there's that stat about how he's been relegated six times or whatever it is with Norwich oh. twice. And he was relegated twice in one season, I think, as well. And um, But he, he in that season, I did think he was excellent. And I, I thought it was such a shame he didn't decide to stay in Company Castle in the Championship. I understand fully why he went to Spurs. But in the end, I don't think it worked out to be the best career move for him. He didn't quite make it at Spurs. And then since then, progressively, his career has just tailed off a little bit. Now Peterborough of course, as Stephen Taylor also uh, did a few years ago. Um, but yeah, like just, just a shame it didn't work out, really. Yeah, well, my left back, you've, you've already stolen my thunder, but um, I've gone for Paul Dummett, someone who is a current member of the Newcastle United side, and I think really until the last year, 18 months, has never been quite appreciated by a section of fans as much as he probably should be. He's not flashy in any way, shape or form. As an attacking force, he's almost non-existent. Although I do think he is better across the ball than some people give him credit. But when he does get past the halfway line, he doesn't look overly comfortable. But defensively, he is just so dependable. And, and Rafa Benitez values him. He is one of the first names on Rafa Benitez's team sheet when he is fit and when Newcastle are playing with a flat back four because Benitez knows exactly what he's going to get from him tactically uh, and discipline wise he's always there he, he very rarely gets caught out of position he isn't the quickest fullback but rarely gets beaten for pace and he's someone who I mean now he's, he's made more than 150 appearances for the club he played all but one of the championship uh, winning season games in the championship winning season uh, debut in 2012-13 the fact that Rafa raised him highly says everything, but also just the way that, that he made it into the first team. He's the anomaly over the last 10 years since Andy Carroll broke into the first team of someone who's actually broken from Newcastle's academy into that first team and made it and genuinely made it. He's a Wales international. He's someone who was willing to go out and loan the Gateshead and St. Mirren when his teammates wouldn't, when some of his... The, the so-called better and higher quality individuals in the 23s wouldn't. And now he is... Uh, a Premier League defender who I think that the majority of teams, out certainly outside the top six, maybe out, maybe you'd say outside the top ten, would have in their team. Most certainly. I mean, I'll be open. I was very critical of him for many seasons, but since Benitez has come along, there's been a, masked, a marked improvement of everything about his game. He still doesn't look overly comfortable on the ball. Sometimes it does look like he's stepping on lava. You know, he doesn't look when it gets past him and, and I, my heart still goes in my mouth a little bit sometimes, especially um, if he, if the ball's played back to him when the other t- team are on a counter, you know, someone's won the ball and it's gone back to him. I do get a little bit nervous, but his defensive game has come on so well. Um, and of course, you, you give credit to Benitez for that, but you've got to give credit to Paul Dummett because, you know, he reads social media, he hears the fans, so he would have been well aware of the certain section of fans who weren't his biggest fan but what he's done is he's knuckled down he's listened to Benitez one of the best managers in the world and you know he's taken it he's not let it affect him the only way it has affected him is by saying right I'm going to use this and I'm going to get better I'm going to improve and without him this season when he was injured and the same as last season when he was missing games Newcastle United looked a worse side because there wasn't that balance I agree, and but the, the thing that I like most about Paul Dummett is one of the very reasons that makes you nervous about him. And I, I, I agree, sometimes he does look so uncomfortable on the ball, but the fact that he recognises his own limitations yes. is what I like about him. I think it, 
certain footballers don't. He recognises that he isn't the most comfortable in possession, so he doesn't try and do anything he can't do. If he needs to, he will just kick it clear. And sometimes if a player can't be flashy on the ball, I'd rather they did that. And the fact that he is humble enough to accept that, I, I really like about him. And of course, you know, he's now kind of famed with these sliding tackles he, he does, you know, when, and when he hits one, and, um, it is it is a sight to be seen. And again, it, it, we were joking, but before the last couple of seasons, before Benitez took over, if he went in with one of them challenges, you, you were sitting there and you were thinking, you know, if someone paused it. This is Acast Recommends. Every week, we pick one of our favourite shows. And this is one we think you're going to love. Hello, I'm Jeff Lloyd, and I recently had a baby with Ed Miliband. A baby podcast, that is. It's a spin-off of our show, Reasons to be Cheerful. It's called Cheerful Book Club, and it's conversations with some of the best writers working in the world today. You'll really enjoy our chats with people like US broadcasting legend Rachel Maddow, literary giant Ian McEwan, and the big short and moneyball author Michael Lewis. Feed your brain with ideas from the Cheerful Book Club. You'll find us on the excellent Acast app or wherever else you get your podcasts. Acast is home to the biggest podcasts from Ireland and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And you, what's going to happen next? You were thinking he's going to go right through him. Yeah, it's going to be a red card. It's not going to be nice. But now you do it and you're like, well, actually, you know, he's going to win the ball. And it, nine times out of ten, he does. And it is, it's a brilliant, you know, it's brilliant to see our match of the day. It's brilliant to see him in person. It gets the crowd going. And off the pitch, he's a brilliant example. He's a brilliant example to not just the youngsters in the 23s and in the 21s and the youth teams below that to say, you know, go out on loan, you know, because he was questioned when he went to Gateshead, why are you going out there? We know, you know, you know, what's it going to benefit you? And actually, it has benefited him because he is where he is now, and he's the first to admit that actually, yeah, it was a, it wasn't a step down, but not many players would have done it. But it gave him first team action, it gave him a platform to build onto, and I think more than that, it, that gives hope to anybody. Um, you know, it's just a great example to anybody that wants to make it in football, whether it be non-league, Sunday league football, that you just knuckled down. And there's always room for improvement. And like you say, if you can admit your limitations and work on them, you know, you are, you, you're going to get better. I couldn't agree more. And I just think that he's, he's a model professional as well, which I think the majority of, of players that we've picked in, in this team are, a lot of them are model professionals. And the type of character that every football club needs, and sometimes it's almost overlooked how important they are. And he loves the club, which, you know, of course, is always going to be a winner in the fans' hearts. Um, we'll go on to... Um, left midfield. I'm going to go uh, Hugo Viana. Um, obviously arrived Sporting Lipson, Lipson, from Sporting Lipson, I'll try that again, from Sporting. Um, signed by Sir Boy Robson. He just won Young European Player of the Year. The story goes it was either Viana or Ronaldo. Newcastle bought Viana. Ronaldo went to my United. We all know how that has worked out. This is this is generally one of the players which it kind of, um, you know, you do just think, imagine what if, because he had such talent and we, we only briefly got to see it. And I don't know whether it was uh, kind of a mentality thing or, or maybe the, the kind of um, disruption that came when Robson ended up being sacked, you know, that, that kind of um, 
brigade made of made up of dire and genius you know the, the disruptive influence that some um you know point to the reason robson ended up getting sacked i don't know if that had a, any impact but it just didn't work out for whatever reason but we did see glimpses we saw uh the goal against Feyenoord. we saw a goal against birmingham and there was there was moments of sheer brilliance you know the passing he, he could he could really pass a ball and he could cross a ball and it was easy to see why he won young player uh, young European player of the year um, but in the end 39 goals two, 39 games sorry two goals you know it, you know one and a half seasons before he moved back to back to Portugal um, you know he will go down probably as a failure in many people's eyes but you know I can't help but wonder you know just, just what if yeah, I mean, I disagree with this point, but not on the selection of Hugo Viana. But if I was to have him in the team, I would, I would have him in central midfield because I think that was part of the issue with him. I, I've read a few interviews with him recently where he talks about when he came to Newcastle, Robson played him often quite wide, and he'd never really played in that position before. He was more comfortable either in a midfield three or in the centre, and he wasn't particularly pacey. He didn't really have a trick, so playing him out wide wasn't the best from I think he struggled culturally as well early on he was still quite young it was difficult for him to adapt but in central midfield particularly we saw later on in his career where he almost sat even deeper and became a defensive midfielder particularly at Braga I just think he had such vision and, and such technical ability that he was someone who needed to be in, in the midfield with someone alongside him to protect him and then you could have got the best out of him but a lot of circumstances went against it it was a move which probably didn't suit him at the time Newcastle didn't best utilise him and it is a, one of those cases of what might have been Almost certainly go on then we'll we'll go with your your right winger. Well, my right winger, I've also gone with a little bit of artistic license again here because I think he probably played more on the left than he did on the right for Newcastle, and that's James Milner. But he can play either wing, can as we've seen subsequently just about play at any position on the pitch apart from goalkeeper. And someone in Newcastle saying two thousand and four, uh, obviously being the youngest ever uh, player in the Premier League for Leeds United. 3.6 million he cost and over the next four five years he made 136 appearances for Newcastle scoring 11 goals but there was also a loan spell to Aston Villa for a season in between that he fell out with Graham Souness and that affected his form at Newcastle but I just think that it says everything that when you read all of the revelations from Kevin Keegan's book this year, that Kevin Keegan was so frustrated when Newcastle lost him. He thought he was getting Bastian Schweinsteiger, so he didn't understand why he agreed to let him go. But otherwise, he was like, I don't want to sell James Milner. Model professional. Newcastle got £12 million from him, which was a bit of a, which was probably above the market rate at that time. But you look at the career he's had since. He is the archetypal top pro. He's now passed 500 Premier League appearances. Very few do. He's won Premier League titles at Man City. He's part of a Liverpool team or top of the league. And he's keeping some very, very good players out of that side. Was arguably the best player on the pitch during a couple of Champions League matches last season. He's just so reliable, so energetic, covers ground, does the unselfish work, but actually is a far better footballer than I think he gets credit for. And I just think he wasn't utilised very well at Newcastle at all at an early stage in his career where he should have been someone Newcastle looked to build a team around. Even today, he's still underrated, isn't he? You know, people still question um, his worth to sides. And, you know, I mean, he'd, he'd still do a job on that Man City side despite all the wealth and the money they've got. And it's, it's, it was no surprise that he joined a side like Liverpool who... Like you say, I'll top the league now, and you do see him. He does. He does the kind of dirty work, or or the work that doesn't go noticed. And I think that's what we can see about a lot of players. I mean, we, I say this all the time about Modi Army, for instance. Now, 
you know, two different type of players. James Milner, you know, a much more gifted player than Modi Army. But I think part of the, the the criticism that Milner gets is the same criticism that Diarmi gets. You just don't see the work they do. They don't grab the headlines. They don't score the goals. They don't, you know, do the, the 30, 40 yard wonder passes. But it's the it's the stuff that, you know, as journalists, we're kind of paid to analyse and, you know, okay, we can't always, like I say, give the back page for their efforts. But it is... We, you, you do notice you know, the little things they do, which are actually, in the grand scheme of things, actually big things because they can start an attack or they break up an attack or you know they, they put their foot in here. And I think you know it's a shame that Milner, even today, doesn't get the credit that he does deserve. But, I mean, his time at Newcastle, it just is a sign. It's, it's, it's a reminder of just what has gone wrong at this club because there you had a player who, okay hadn't reached the heights that he has now, but he was young, he was progressing, you know, you could have built a side around the, around James Milner, you know, he was he had raw ability, you know, uh, impressed at Leeds, you know, he, he was, even for his age, he, he was shown why he is where he is at now, and it was, it, it, you know, we're going to go f- through a few more players, I think that, again, shows just what's gone wrong over the last 11 years under Mike Ashley. But for me, Milner is one of them that you hold up and you just think, why on earth did did we sell him and did Newcastle sell him in the way they did? And particularly now that you look at it and, and Newcastle are a club who, under Mike Ashley, won players under the age of 26, sell on value, young British players have signed a lot. Well, James Milner was still a young British player when, when Newcastle sold him. He still had a big future. And yes, they did make a profit on him, but he was someone who... He knits a side together. He knits a club together. He's exactly the type of character, again, we're going back to this, who you want in a football club. And I just found it baffling when they sold him. Found it baffling really when he went on loan, but that was partly to do with the fact that he'd fallen out with Souness. And the fact that you just look at the career he's had in the 10 years since Newcastle sold him and you just really have to question those decisions. Just banging your head against a bit. Well, but he's the kind of player that, fits into Rafa Benitez's side isn't he you know he's a he's a guy who runs himself into the ground for the cause he's a guy who's given instruction and he'll follow it he's the guy who's vocal he's a guy who will will lead a team even if he hasn't got that armband um you know around his arm he he, he will and he's just I just think he's he's one of the best players in the Premier League era I genuinely believe that I don't he's never going to Catcher the headlines like Alan Shearer, Thierry Henry, those sorts of players, and he isn't quite in their bracket. But in terms of professionals and just consistent performers, he's certainly up there. No, more certainly onto the centre midfielders. I'm going to go for Bernard Anita. Um, I think I was probably one of his biggest fans. Um, I, I just don't understand the kind of a bit like Milner and a bit like the army today, the kind of grief he got. And again, it was because he did the work that doesn't get the headlines. Um, I think he wasn't helped by the fact he was the only signing after Newcastle finished fifth. I don't think that helped him because it went downhill from then. It was, you know, I think he would come in with two or three other players and there was a, Newcastle United stayed at the same level. That would have maybe helped his stock somewhat, but let's not forget. I mean, by the age of 23, He'd made 109 appearances, including quite a few in the Champions League for Ajax. Um, finished his career at Newcastle with 133 games. Uh, was instrumental in that championship winning side, despite not really holding down a starting 11 
place. He was still very, very important. Obviously, it hasn't worked out at Leeds. Um, I think I think he's now left. But for me, you know, he was out, he was the modern professional. He would run. I say he would put his put everything into it. He had an eye for a pass. He wasn't the strongest, you know, but I think he made up for that in in the way he could pick out a pass. You know, he would get his his legs going. Of course, he played at right back as well at certain times, which was I think a bizarre decision by certain managers to do that. I think he's, he was at home in the centre midfield role, maybe playing a bit deeper. Um, remembered for scoring a, a brilliant volley against Club Bruges in the Europa League. Uh, and, and just, I, I read a, uh, I found an old match day program from uh, Steve McLaren's first game at St James's Park. It was against Southampton, and there was an interview with Jack Holbach, and he was asked all about his, you know, the worst dress sense, the, the, the joker of the side. Um, you could imagine that Stephen Taylor was given that title, but he was asked about the best trainer, and it was Vernon Anita, and he was also asked about. Um, the modern professional, and it was Vernon Anita, and you know uh, Jack Holbach couldn't speak highly enough of of, of Vernon Anita, and, and he's not the only one. You know, I think Benitez has even said it. You know, yeah, okay, it came to an end, but you know he was a very crucial player on and off the pitch. He was, and actually, I disagree about the right back point. I actually thought that he played some of his best football for Newcastle there, particularly during the Championship season. I thought that he offered a defensive option there, and I was surprised when Newcastle were promoted and both his and Gufran's contracts were up, that it was Gufran that Newcastle actually offered a contract to, albeit he didn't accept it. I was surprised that he let Anita go. But the thing about Vernon Anita for me was always I felt that he needed a physical presence alongside him in midfield. He was a technical player, someone who, who could do the defensive side, but I think could could do those little passes you need. And I always felt that Newcastle didn't give him the support he needed in the middle if he'd had a physical presence, almost like Modi Army now, if he'd been playing defensive midfield, I think we would have seen the very best of Vernon Anita. And again, a player who probably wasn't played, not in his best position, but given the best support uh, to excel in that position. No, uh, no, most certainly agree. I mean, we've seen it with Modi Army and Key. Key's kind of, you know, he's a bit taller, but kind of the same build, you know, quite small, hasn't got really got that muscle on him. And that's why, you know, it just sounds like I'm writing a love letter to Modi Army, but that is why Modi Army is so crucial because he allows Key, who has been brilliant since replacing Shelby, to, to really uh, to grow and to, to do what Key's good at. And that's because the Army does the muscle stuff, does the, the dirty work, a bit like Tioti did um, when, you know, he was at Newcastle and. Yeah, like I say, it's a shame that it, it, the balance wasn't there for Anita to progress and flourish. I, I agree. And uh, going on to the other centre midfielder, um, some Newcastle fans will probably think I'm trolling them with this one, but I, I genuinely am not. This is someone who I think that, again, has suffered from the fact that the reputation... I can't read your handwriting there. It's uh, Jermaine Genus. But, uh, someone this, is, this might provoke a bit of debate. Well, exactly. I mean, this is, again, like having beer, but I think to an even greater extent, someone whose reputation was so badly damaged by the way that he left the club with, the obviously, the goldfish ball comments and everything that, that he said and, and basically almost forcing through a move to Spurs. And I think that really has dented a reputation. When you think about when Newcastle first signed him, £5 million from Nottingham Forest, the time he was 18 years old, 17 he may even be, but I think he was 18 was the second most expensive British teenager in history at that stage. Hugo Viana subsequently overtook him. Just, just stole my point there, but yeah, continue. Um, 
but he starred in the Champions League in that 2002-2003 season. He was the PFA Young Player of the Year. He was excellent that season. The, the subsequent seasons, I think he was hit and miss and on and off, but this is a, a player who was so young, came up to Newcastle where all there was the nightlife at the time. We know the culture there was in the dressing room. Um, he spoke and subsequently, does it, he obviously does a lot of media now, and he's spoken subsequently about how after games he used to just go out in his tracksuit in the set of Newcastle and for a single lad in his late teens, early 20s, that was the sort of environment where you get distracted. But as a box-to-box midfielder, I don't think Newcastle have had many better in the last 15, 20 years. He would get from one box to that didn't score enough goals. Admittedly, I accept that. But I think the manner in which he left really dented his reputation. He, never, he, he played well for Spurs, but never quite again hit his heights. And I don't know exactly why that was. Injuries started to affect him later on. But he's just a player, I think, at the time when he was in that team, he was very important. In a, He would break into a side which had the likes of Gary Speed, Kieran Dyer, Lauren Robert. Norberto Solano and yet he was regularly getting a game in his late teens early 20s and I just think that the exit has, has, has tarnished a reputation which I think is undeserved some very good TV pundit now he is doing very well for himself and he's very honest that's what I like about him as a TV pundit he does he is very honest Not, and I don't mean that just about when he talks about other teams I mean about his own career and when he discusses what happened at Newcastle and also elsewhere no, most, most certainly I mean there's quite a few names we could, we could pop into that centre mid field category um, I mean anyone else that you would like to just give a brief mention to uh, well I had toyed with putting Jack Cole back in there as well um, someone who never again never really hit the heights at Newcastle but I, I think was important particularly during that championship season and again subsequently it's all gone wrong for him with his relationship with Benitez and the like and I don't necessarily think he was treated in exactly the right way particularly given his relationship with the club. Also, the fact that he came from Sunderland in the first place, I always think that that, that always is, there's that slight doubt in Newcastle fans' mind about the fact that he had been Sunderland player and that he'd celebrated when he'd scored at St. James's Park. So he'd probably be another name I'd throw in the mix. A couple more names in. David Batty, Lee Clark? Yeah, definitely both of them. Yeah, David Batty, I think, certainly. Uh, David Batty was kind of brought in to to be the enforcer of that and entertain that side and it didn't quite work. But I mean... You know, brilliant, brilliant player, wasn't he? Oh, a really good player and uh, obviously won won the title uh, when he was at Blackburn and someone who played for England and actually didn't enjoy football very much. Didn't really like football, admitted that, but in terms of uh, being that destroyer in midfield, there's, there's been few better in the Premier League. No, most certainly. On to um, the forward line then. Obviously, Newcastle United had a wealth of superb strikers. Even when it's been going... Badly, Newcastle have always seemed to have that one goal scorer, and of course, you know, outside that, you've got the likes of you know from the last thirty years. And you, you, we can start with uh, Dave, David Kelly. You go on to you know Gavin Peacock, Andy Cole, Ferdinand Shearer. We, we could go on, um, but in terms of kind of the underrated players, I've gone for John Dal Thomason. I think circumstance made it a very difficult. Um, start to his Newcastle United career. He was brought in as a young player, you know, who was going to learn the ropes, you know, and progress. But, you know, Ferdinand was sold, Shiva got injured, you're then left with this youngster who I believe was only 19 or 20 at the time he came in, um, to lead a forward line in front of fans who had been used to challenging for the Premier League, who were going through a difficult phase themselves because, it's you know, They'd, they'd gone from battling for the title to this kind of 
in a way mediocre side under under Daglish. She hadn't obviously worked out, um, and obviously that's trying transgressing to 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 Hullet and, and so on. But you know, Thomason had talent. I mean, he won a Champions League, he won a Serie A, Coppa Italia. He, he went on and scored a hundred and forty-seven goals. Um, you know, after leaving Newcastle, you know, played for AC Milan. He really showed um, what he could do. And I just think it was maybe, I think if Shearer hadn't got injured, we would have seen it, we would have seen it go a lot different. I think, yeah, circumstances conspired against Thomason. He was a technical player coming across from Europe and he was almost more of a number 10 slash second striker. And if he'd had a big forward alongside him, I think he could have thrived, but he was he was thrust into that role up front where he'd never really played it before. He's spoken subsequently about this where he wasn't an old fashioned number nine and Newcastle had just had over the last the three years before that I had Cole, Ferdinand and Shearer. And so fans' expectations were that Thomason was gonna follow the same sort of route and he just wasn't that sort of player. That's the interesting point, isn't it? Because if he joined Newcastle today at nineteen twenty, you would say he would compliment Salomon Rondon absolutely superbly. And I think the difference is, like you say, at the time he came in, the, the kind of style of striker was just starting to turn in the Premier League. We'd been used to these ball down, battle net, bang, you know, strong header. You know, not many of the strikers were built around speed, of course. You know, the likes of Cole, Fernand, they had speed about them. Even even Chira, to a certain degree, I mean, he'd be the first to admit he wasn't the quickest, but there was certain, yeah, you know, they, they could be quick when they wanted to. I mean, Cole was, you know, out the blocks, but you know that wasn't their main element. That wasn't their main attribute, and we were just starting to see that turn where the Premier League was starting to see strikers who were built on speed, where they would run at defenders. It was all about the movement rather than having the ball kind of at the feet. And you know, I think he was unfortunate because for me, he was one of the, the kind of the first players that we saw in terms of a, a different type of striker. You know that that the fans were, were beginning to see. Yeah, well, I think just compare him. I'm not saying he's he's a good player as, but the same situation in Arsenal when Dennis Bergkamp came in, he was that second striker. He was the one who who was really the eyes of the team, the one who would create more than he would necessarily score. And I think Thomason could have been that for Newcastle if he'd had Shearer or Ferdinand or whoever it was ahead of him. And Newcastle, when Shearer got injured, tried to end the Ferdinand transfers. My understanding that they tried to to bring him back to, to Newcastle and say, don't, don't sign there because she was out for the season, but they couldn't. And then they ended up having to have Thomason up front and he just wasn't that central striker and it didn't suit him or the team the way that they played. And that's why he left early. Grand, go on then. Who is going to partner John Dal Thomason up top? Well, initially I was going to go for Obafemi Martins, who I think was, was, was underrated, although I don't think he necessarily helped himself at times one of the best strikes I've ever seen against Spurs the way after the way that, that how little backlift there was but I've actually gone for Shola Ramiobi the cult hero that is the Fenemy Sabio the Macam Slayer whatever you want to refer to him as someone who um, was ne- is never going to be considered one of the best strikers in Newcastle United's history and rightly so because he isn't up there with all the stellar names and again I think he's someone who suffered from the period when he came into the team Deputy Alan Shearer was expected to hit those sort of heights and was never really going to do that. Injuries also blighted his career. Carl Court's injury probably didn't help because at the time Carl Court was brought in as the the second the second kind of striker and that probably thrust Amiobi into the limelight when he got injured. Exactly, and uh, I think that 
he, he may have struggled with that to a certain degree and injuries at every single stage in his career hampered him. He had quite a bit of pace early on, was was quite gangly, lanky. Later on in his career, to adapt his game, became physically strong, one of the physically, most physically strong strikers in the Premier League. Um, but 397 games over 14 years at the club for nearly 20 years all in all. Um, someone who, who loves the club, was brought up in the area, is a foundation patron, does so much off the pitch and did so much off the pitch when he was at Newcastle. He was one of the leaders in the dressing room. Pardew used to lean heavily on Shola Amiobi as his general in the dressing room and even when he got to a stage of his career where he couldn't start matches, he would come on the last 15-20 minutes and change games. Obviously, he's got his record against Sunderland, seven goals, 12 derbies. Few have scored more. I think only Jackie Milburn or has scored more in, in that fixture. A very good record against Middlesbrough as well. And someone who, over the course of a long period, was just so important to Newcastle. Scored at the new Camp, which was one of his highlights. But just like Lee Harper, uh, Steve Harper, sorry, he was one of those players who was just part of, of the fabric of the dressing room. Someone who was there for so long. And uh, I think that when he left in 2014, Newcastle lost something a little bit because they didn't have those characters anymore. Him and Harper left at a similar sort of time and, and they lost uh, those players with the real deep-rooted connection to the club. Um, and I think that we're seeing subsequently how important he was as a character. I totally agree. And then your goals against Sunderland will obviously live long in the memory. I mean, if he had taken the penalty against Sunderland, that Demma Barr decided he was going to take, you know, Newcastle would have won that derby. Um, a brilliant end um, when he when he got the goal. Poor goalkeeper, admittedly, but, you know, right place, right time. Farmy Aubin is a superb hat-trick, I remember, against Redden as well in the yeah. championship. And I think then it was I his think, only hat-trick, I think. It was yeah, he, they got injured a few weeks later, didn't he? And yeah. that was it. I mean, he, he built on that. You know, we may be... We wouldn't be speaking about him in too different of a light, but a bit of a different light. Um, we were going to have a debate about the captain, but I'm going to say that we're probably, and I don't know about if Chris agrees, but I think we're probably going to agree on Paul Dummett. Actually, I think I would have gone for James Milner, but... Um, James Milner is. I'm just trying to cut time because I know you've got lots of important things to write, but go on then, James Milner on the line. Just think that, I mean, he's been captain for several different clubs, uh, I suppose I'm basing this not just on what he did in Newcastle I'm basing this on his career as a whole experience at national level uh, I think that he does speak his mind but also knows how to, to converse with his teammates so there's a few there's a few options you could add in here Shola I think would have been another option I think Paul Dummett was very good on. also Aaron Hughes actually I think particularly was at Fulham but I just think James Milner centre midfield that's where I like my captain to be do you not want to just put Jimmy and Genius in there as well we'll just pick your whole five or six option. oh could do if you want yeah I just think my selections are better. But. <laughs> well, there you have it. We'd love to hear your um, first 11 of the most underrated Newcastle United players. So please do give us a tweet or send over an email to us or, of course, on Facebook. I'd just like to give a brief mention as well to our live talk. And if you are listening to this before January the 24th of 2019, um, we are holding a live talk in with all ticket proceeds going to the Newcastle United Food Bank. It's £5 in, but that includes... A pint on arrival and a pie in peace. So before we get down to talking about Newcastle United transfers, takeover, Rafa Benitez's future and what have you. So that's happening at the Ware Rooms on the 24th of January 2019. Uh, all the details are on our website. So please do come along to that. Um, otherwise, um, hopefully you'll be listening to this on 
uh, Christmas Day. So if you are, I hope you're having a very Merry Christmas. And if you listen to it after, I hope we've had a nice Christmas and have a, a, a grand new year. And if you just listen to after in general, I hope you've had a lovely day and continue to come back to the Everything is Black and White podcast. I've been Andrew Musgrove, joined by Chris Woff. Um, thank you very much. This is Acast Recommends. Every week, we pick one of our favourite shows. And this is one we think you're going to love. Hello, I'm Jeff Lloyd, and I recently had a baby with Ed Miliband. A baby podcast, that is. It's a spin-off of our show, Reasons to be Cheerful. It's called Cheerful Book Club, and it's conversations with some of the best writers working in the world today. You'll really enjoy our chats with people like US broadcasting legend Rachel Maddow, literary giant Ian McEwan, and the big short and moneyball author Michael Lewis. Feed your brain with ideas from the Cheerful Book Club. You'll find us on the excellent Acast app or wherever else you get your podcasts. Acast is home to the biggest podcasts from Ireland and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts.